I mean, God, we just want to thank you uh, that we can come together. This small little group represents a much bigger uh, group of people, community of people who have been called into a living and alive uh, relationship with you for the grace that we find and encounter in Christ. This morning, uh, as, as we get into this passage and we look at the calling of Levi, uh, would you speak to our hearts? Uh, would you warm them? Uh, with affection for you, that, that we would then follow you, that we would walk a life that, 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 that looks and models what it is to be in relationship with a loving God. And we give you thanks for that this morning. We pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know what? Uh, whenever you want to uh, start a business or, say, a franchise, or even if you want to plant a church, um, if you want your venture, if you want your movement, to be successful and to get traction and to be accepted by those around you. There's, there's two key things, amongst many, that you're going to need, and that is great branding and great people. Uh, these are the locks for success, if you like, in any enterprise that, that wants to succeed. You've got to find good people, people who are not merely just eminently qualified in the area or the field you want to get into, but also have the kind of character that you want your your brand, your community to be known by. You know, the Essendon Football Club has just finished doing a, a, um, a club-wide review on the back of a very disappointing year. And it, it always warms our hearts when Essendon has a disappointing year, and we should always make reference to it. But one of the things that has emerged uh, out of this from the disenfranchised uh, community around the Essendon Football Club, their followers, is that, that Essendon lacked a clear brand, uh, that, that it lacked a good and attractive culture. The club had, had lost its identification. People now, now didn't understand what the club stood for. But even worse than that, if it stood for anything, it's, it stood for being soft and, and, and not hard at it. Solution, go and get players and coaches that communicate and, and people in, in the infrastructure that communicate dedication and commitment and a drive to success. Go and find the good people that they need, just not Josh Dunkley. Couldn't, couldn't kind of get him over the line, but hey, we're not too worried about that either. Read, read any PD, if you like, uh, for the role of a pastor at a church. They must be able to outdo Jesus in preaching and teaching and character and church growth. And oh, yeah, that little, you know, and, and just adjust as the Spirit leads. We, we just want beyond uh, exceptional people running and heading up our organization, getting the right people who will bring both the skills and the qualifications and, and, and form a confident, attractional public perception it is fundamental. It's just 101 to beginning anything if you want it to have success, if you want it to go anywhere. Well, it seems Jesus, who is the founder of the Christian faith, that's his little enterprise, if you like, that he wants to get up and running, must not have read this memo to success because ever since Jesus kind of went public with what he's doing back in Luke 4, that he is God's uh, great promised agent of, of, of salvation and, and began to talk and, about um, what he is going to do in, and how he's going to proclaim good news around himself. Jesus has done nothing but collect outcasts, discards, sinners as key people in this new community that he is building. And his brand, by the time, if we ever finally get to Luke 7, like that might be 2024 by the time we get to Luke 7, but by the time we get to Luke 7, his brand amongst the religious people, amongst the community, is that he is a friend of sinners. And it's not a compliment. 
nor is it a title that Jesus gave himself, but rather it's one given to him by his enemies to discredit him, to, to make him look unattractive. And we see this brand, this reputation beginning to take shape, beginning to take place in our passage today as the Pharisees kind of grumble, as they question, as they question Jesus' practice um, and, and the way he operates in regard to, to rituals and observance of rituals in their, in their religious heritage. It's an accurate assessment, but it's also an inaccurate one. Yes, Jesus offers friendship to sinners, but not for him to go and join them, but for them to come and join him. Luke has been piling up story after story, not so much to emphasize the fact that Jesus is a friend of sinners, but that Jesus is the one who forgives sinners and that Jesus is the one who calls sinners out of that world and into a new way to live, into a new life around him. So Jesus rather than head straight to Jerusalem and book some appointments with potential, you know, political, religious, financial, kind of social influences who can help him trend, who can help him, you know, uh, meet people in high places and, and get the right traction. He has been hanging out, interacting at a street level with the common folk in common places like Galilee and Nazareth and Capernaum. And he's not been following the accepted sort of etiquettes of social distancing and quarantining from undesirables, from those whose close contact means a time of isolation, a time of social and economic and religious um, isolation, a loss of access and freedom to things. However, what we also have seen is that, is that rather than Jesus becoming like these people, becoming contaminated, becoming unclean with contact with these people, we see these people uh, being transformed by Jesus. For the first time in human history, the contagion, the effects of sin are reversed. The transition runs the other way. As Jesus makes unclean people clean, as Jesus makes broken people whole and renewed, and we hear Jesus explaining that this transformation is far more radical than it just appears on the surface. This physical transformation served to illustrate how Jesus has the authority to spiritually transform, or to put it bluntly as Jesus did last week, to forgive sins. Jesus is not merely transforming social outcasts, he's transforming spiritual outcasts. He's come to gather and collect those for whom sin has outcast them from the presence of God and, and to make them fit for his presence and to make them fit for the emerging community that comes out of this good news that Jesus has said he's come to proclaim uh, about himself. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, were driven out of the Garden of Eden, ever since they, we first participated in sin, we've been driven out of the presence of God. Sin has made every single human heart an outcast. And, it is made, and sin has made us all unfit for a relationship with God, to come into his presence, to enjoy his beauty, his glory. And sin also destroys all other relationships. Jesus has come to collect the outcasts that sin has imprisoned, those whose, whose sin-deformed hearts keep them from enjoying God and loving their neighbor. That's who Jesus has come to meet and heal and transform. And even when it comes to choosing his, his, his disciples, those who are going to be the, you know, the, the brand of everything he does, 
not merely those he just comes, you know, social acquaintances, but, but he doesn't go out and find 12, you know, theologically trained, morally upright, spiritually disciplined men. Instead, he gathers this motley crew of everyday sinners. They hardly seemed like the good foundations of a movement that would turn the world upside down. However, when they met Jesus, their lives were changed in such a dramatic and permanent way, they couldn't do anything else. Jesus has already called Peter and Andrew, uh, James and John, some, some fishermen. And these are men who themselves have been cast aside by a system. All Jewish boys begin life learning the Torah and the law and they enter into school and they get schooled in understanding all the ins and outs of Jewish life and ritual and, and, and cultic practice and all this kind of stuff. And it's only the elite that keep going. It's only the elite that make it through. It's only those who show promise and, can some, and at some point can make a, a rabbi look good by being their student that are kept in this system. The rest are sent home to work in their father's business or, or to do work. The rest are sent home to become fishermen or, or blacksmiths or whatever. These men that Jesus has gathered around him as his disciples are Bible college outcasts. They've already been rejected by the protectors of the brand of Israel's religious expression and practice. They are not what we would call first round draft picks for someone wanting to start a, a new religious community, a new movement, a, a new following. It's a departure from normative thinking and practice. It's a real Kevin Sheedy kind of change of direction. It's a little anti-establishment. And as Jesus explains in verses 36 and 39, down towards the end of our passage, this new radical expression of a religious community of grace-initiated people, of people who come in via grace, not works-based repentance, people who, who, who find forgiveness through grace and, and not something they've done, people who become transformed by an encounter in Jesus, is so upside down, so radical, that this old system just won't be able to handle it. New wineskins are going to be needed, new vessels to contain this new good news. And the new community that emerges out of this is not going to be everybody's taste, it's not going to be everybody's brand. The contrast between the separatism of the Jewish officials and the outreach of Jesus is becoming clearer and clearer. A greater divide is taking place between uh, these two entities. It's a divide that's going to become irreconcilable in today's passage. Because while it's unusual and irregular to call fishermen as the key figures of your new religious brand, your new, your new movement, it is scandalous and offensive and just beyond acceptable that you would call a tax collector into that group to be a key figure in your movement. Jesus' ministry, his willingness to, to reach out to outcast has progressed from just merely crossing academic lines and ceremonial lines and physical lines and boundaries. It's now crossed into a more personal social ones. Jesus has gone from forgiving sinners to now associating with sinners. The calling of Levi to become a disciple, a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and then to see how that calling of an individual, that initiating of that invitation to an individual, multiplies into even greater association and relationships with, with people of despised reputation and character. It just multiplies in the minds of these old wineskins the danger that Jesus poses. The next thing Jesus is going to be doing is saying that, that, that he has come to replace the temple, that the temple is not even necessary anymore. 
Jesus is going too far in the minds of these people. And indeed he is. And as we cheer him on, we need to be careful that we don't go too far ourselves with what it is that Jesus is actually doing and what it is that Jesus is not doing. There is a clear founding brand, if you like, a clear, a clear, a clear message uh, as Christianity gets off the ground that, that Jesus models outreach to the outcast, concern, care for those on the margins. But it is not to excuse or condone people of their sins, but to care for people and then have them transformed out of that, have them transformed out of slavery through the gospel. It's an association that seeks to transform, not accommodate. The calling of Levi in Luke's model in Luke is a model picture of what this looks like, of what it looks like to be transformed and called out of one way of life into another. Jesus is now including in his community a person who is universally despised and seen as a criminal, who, who operates inside a, a state-protected sort of extortion and exploitation regime, who in doing so has, has turned his back on his heritage, has turned his back on his people. And it also means that, that his practice and his way of life cuts him off from being able to, to practice in his religious expression of life. He can't go into the temple. He can't address sin in his life. He is roundly hated and, and, and he is permanently considered unclean by, by his fellow man. Well, long before Jim's mowing came along, the Romans had perfected franchising and they used this concept to collect a vast amount of revenue that was needed to keep the running of their empire, to keep their armies going and feed them, to, to keep control of this vast empire. And the franchise that they used, that they, that they handed out, was tax collection licenses, franchises. They sold these tax collection franchises to the highest bidder. And as long as they got their tax, as long as they got their revenue, they could give a rip about how the operator went about collecting it. It wasn't the most regulated practice going around. So tax collectors dreamt up ways of increasing their margins, of exploiting anyone and everyone, safe in the knowledge that they were protected by Rome and that they had franchise exclusivity, that they had no competition about what they were doing. You had to deal with them if you wanted to trade, uh, if you wanted to use a road, if you wanted to pull your boat up at a harbour. Um, they taxed everything. Uh, they, they dreamt up ways of saying they taxed the, the number of wheels that people had on their carts. Uh, if you could find a reason to tax people, they would tax them. Tax collectors had the power to, to stop you and make you unload all your products and, and then apportion a tax to each one of them. It was a franchise that was built for corruption and those who had a corrupt inclination. Tax collectors were considered so treacherous and untrustworthy in character that their testimony wasn't even, even considered accessible in courts of law. No one, no one liked tax collectors. And in particular, the Jews. For, for added to the insult of having to pay taxes on everything was the fact that they were paying their taxes to an occupying regime. It wasn't even going to their people, to, the, to their systems. But what they hated even more was when one of their own, when one of their people facilitated the practice. And added to this ignominy of being a tax collector was also the ceremonial unworthiness and uncleanliness of it. Because tax collectors were in constant contact with Gentiles, their property, their money. 
And they were in a continuous state of ceremonial uncleanliness, which meant they couldn't enter the temple, uh, a sacrifice for sins, worship, do any of this practice. An exclusion uh, in, in, in this particular man that is made all the more cunning, all the more maybe ironic, if you like, because of his name, Levi. Levi is a name that is descendant from the tribe of Levites, a name given to those, the priests who would lead Israel in worship, oversee Israel in their religious practice. Rather than seeing uh, this Levi stand in worship at the temple and lead Israel in this way, this Levi sits at a tax booth doing evil. The ultimate outcast with every transaction further alienating him from society and religious acceptance. He is sinfully rich and socially ostracized. It's the kind of condition, it's the kind of environment, uh, the kind of stigma that if, if it's you, it can make you bitter, can make you even more self-sufficient. It can, it can harden you towards relationships. You find yourself comforting yourself in your own achievements, in your own power. You might be despised, but at least you can enjoy your life and just occasionally stick it to those who despise you as you order your tacos in your chateau and you have built overlooking the lake. You medicate your ostracism through more money, more power, more stuff. But as all outcasts will tell you, it's a lonely and cruel existence. These are poor saviors. Luke tells us that Jesus rolls up on Levi. And we must imagine that there has been some level of exchange between these two before this moment. Maybe in his quiet moment when he wasn't ripping people off, um, Levi had a chance to listen to Jesus preach. No doubt Levi, um, as he dealt with everybody who passed through, uh, had had many conversations about this Jesus, about what he could do, about what he said. There's something different about this Jesus He seems not to be controlled by the usual prejudices. And now Levi, sitting in his booth, finds himself caught in the gaze of Jesus. And Luke says that Jesus, that he saw this tax collector, which is a lovely turn of phrase that Sandy Wilson explains means he regarded him with careful and deliberate vision, which interprets its object. Jesus looked at him, looked at Levi, and saw first and foremost a person, a person who was a sinner in need of grace. And he said to that person, follow me. It's a a non-prejudicial gaze, but it's a convicting gaze that offers change and transformation. Jesus sees Levi to the very bottom of who he is. And rather than see someone to to be despised, see someone that he needs to quarantine and section off, seeing only what Levi has become and done with his life, Jesus sees what Levi could be. Jesus sees somebody to love, and he moves toward him and invites him into a new way of life, into a new way of living, into a life centered around him and following him. And then the most radical and courageous thing happens. Luke says, Levi left everything and he followed Jesus. 
What is pictured here is, is far more expansive than just a simple leaving behind of his booth and his chateau. What is pictured here is, in its amazing brevity is repentance. The leaving behind of, of one set of priorities that defined and motivated a life for another. The leaving behind of prioritizing life around self-defined identities and saviors for a life defined around a relationship with Jesus and how he tells us to live. The leaving everything behind is not just an asset dump in some oppressive, impressive kind of demonstration of, of personal sacrifice. That would just be another way of earning his salvation. Now, what Levi does is far more transformative, far more radical than that. Levi is a picture of what it looks like to, to respond to Jesus' call, what it looks like when you have been seen by Jesus to the very bottom and he offers you a walk with God. Levi exchanges one way of life for another. Levi has had his heart transformed. It's an internal reprioritizing of everything about his life. This is what grace does to a soul it brings life levi walks away from his tax booth he leaves behind his own corrupt approach to life that all goes and in exchange for a life shaped by jesus teaching following jesus being a part of this new community which at this point consists of some fishermen who have spent their life being taxed and ripped off by Levi. This is the community these guys brought into. Natural born enemies. We say it all the time. Sin is being collected into a family of grace. Levi, Levi's inclusion uh, in, into this startup radical team is, is not just kind of confronting to the team. It's radical in its choice and it's radical in its acceptance. For Levi, for him personally, there's no plan B. You don't just cut ties with the mob that runs this tax racket and expect a second chance there if things don't work out. For Levi, for, for Levi leaving this and following Jesus means an end to a corrupt way of living, an end to sinful structures that lead to financial advantage. But this is what repentance looks like. A definite break with, with one way of living, with no plan B. There is something far more attractive in what Jesus offers than what the old life delivered. And so Levi leaves it behind to follow Jesus. You know, you haven't actually met Jesus. You haven't actually felt his gaze. Had him see you to the very bottom. If nothing actually changes in your life at a motivational level, you do whatever you like on the outside, but if nothing changes internally, you, you haven't met Jesus. Jesus does not leave sinful people in the same condition. He changes those he meets. Well, Levi might have left behind his former way of life because he has found in Jesus something far more desirable, but he has no intention of leaving behind or quarantining himself from his friends, from his associates, from his fellow tax collectors, his fellow sinners. Now under new management, Levi repurposes his wealth, his assets, his connections 
to celebrate his new life. He, he gathers them all together. He calls a big banquet at his house. And, and the one thing he wants to do here is he wants to celebrate this new life. Three things, actually. He wants to celebrate this new life. He wants to make much of Jesus. And he wants to share the good news with his friends. These are the indicators that repentance and new life has come uh, to a transformed heart. Levi holds a huge banquet, a great feast in his house. So he obviously hasn't dumped everything. It's, a, it's public and it's joy-filled celebration of this new life. The Christian faith is not something that you are meant to hide. Not something you're meant to put under a bed or, as Jesus said, under, under a, a lampstand or whatever it is. It feel, it's not something that's supposed to fill you with fear or shame. Not something to be hidden away. But something to celebrate. Something that fills you with joy. That you just want to repurpose all of your resources and assets to, to, to just lighting it up and sharing it. Secondly, what, what Levi wants to do is to make much of Jesus. This banquet is in honor of him. Jesus is the them that everyone has come to see and are now reclining around the table with. This is a true symptom of, that you are following Jesus, is that you make much of him. He is the center of all your activities. He is the center of all your resources and relationships. G- Levi had all his... All his worship priorities changed, for want of a better way of putting it. His heart now wants to make much of Jesus, rather than make much of his own collection of assets. Finally, rather than this new life of uh, renouncing sinful practices, cutting him off from his friends, we don't see that happening here. And separating himself from outcasts, Levi dreams up ways of inviting them to come. To come and find what he has found. That's a whole one of the reasons behind this banquet. That his friends, that, that sinners would be able to come and see and meet Jesus. And he does it at his own expense. And he does it at his own cost. The banquet that Levi holds is a picture of what it looks like when salvation comes to the heart of someone. It's a picture of what happens when you have been seen by Jesus. When all that is ugly and despised is known, but it's not weaponized against you. Rather, when it comes into contact with Jesus, it's healed, it's cured. And it begins to transform. Not everything, not instantly, but it's a journey. And and it's demonstrated in public joy. It's demonstrated in renewed worship priorities. And it's seen with a new motivation to share this good news with others. It's a picture that even the most despised and outcast person can have a walk with God and find a place in a community where natural-born enemies become brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to collect outcasts, outcasts that sin is separated from God, and bring them to a banquet, bring them into fellowship around Him. A point that Jesus makes very clear later on. When the Pharisees start kind of getting up in the grill of all the disciples and pointing out that this kind of religious movement and expression is highly irregular. And it gave the appearance of, 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 the, of sharing in and accepting sinful lifestyles with these people. And this is where Jesus gives us a, a clear uh, picture of clarity around his mission and our mission. Of course, I associate with sinners. 
And even these tax collectors, these are the very people who are most aware of their need, of their unworthiness. They are aware of their sin and what that does to life. These are the people who I have come to collect. These are people who actually know they are sick. They know that sin has made them outcasts. So why would the one who has the cure not go and offer that to them? Not go and associate with them. Lead them to forgiveness. Here is what you must come to terms with. Just as a doctor spends his time with sick in order to heal them, so too is the Son of God. Have I come into the world to spend time with sinners in order to heal them? My associating with sinners is not to join them, is, is, is not to excuse them in their sin, you, know, you will not find one mention in the Bible anywhere that Jesus joined, or excuse, joined in or excused sin anywhere. But rather what Jesus does is he says, I move towards them and I call them out of sin. I don't wait for people to self-diagnose and I don't wait for people to clean themselves up. They won't. They can't. I seek them out. And I see them to the very bottom. And I challenge them to sense their need. And, that, and a need that will be met in a God who binds up their wounds. The wounds of sin. And brings them to health and a place of repentance. Where sinners find new motives for life. Motives based in grace. These are the reasons why I spend time with sinners. And not the righteous. They see their need. The question is. Well, the question you need to ask is not why I spend time with sinners, but why do you grumble about this? What is it that causes a rub in you about this? Grumbling about grace is a clear sign that you haven't actually known God at all. You have never encountered how he is, makes himself known. The Pharisees grumbled about Jesus because they saw their walk with God as achieved their acceptance by God, as being achieved through their good works, through their piety, through their morality, through their observation of the law. They are offended by the claim that they actually need Jesus too. They need Jesus' challenge of repentance and offer of forgiveness. This just drives the Pharisees absolutely crazy. But what of us? It's easy to call the Pharisees out here, but what of us? What is it uh, that, that the challenge of Jesus, this, this challenge of repentance, makes us grumble rather than follow? What aspect of our identities, of our resources, of our worship and our practice do we take offense to when Jesus sees it and says, this is an a sin-enslaved need that makes you an outcast from God, and I've come to heal that, and I've come to transform that. I've come to call you out of that and make you a whole new creature. What is it that we, that we find offensive about Jesus' call to change? Have you encountered the grace that Levi encountered, the kind of grace that allows you to repent of sin in a way that leads you to joy, celebration and worship? Luke is telling us that this is what repentance looks like, a joyful change from an outcast into a community where your heart is reprioritized to follow Jesus, to love God, and to move toward your neighbor. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this uh, continuing story of how you have come to meet our needs in Jesus. And now we're finding that this is a challenging story. It's a story that demands change in order for us to encounter it and, and really live in it. We pray that as we hear the demands of the gospel, of repentance and change, that our hearts would not find places to cling on and say, you can't, you can't make me change that. You can't. But rather, we would see something more beautiful, something more desirable in what Jesus is calling us to. Life back in relationship with God, what we were created for and designed for. And we thank you for that now. And Lord, we just pray uh, that your spirit would just, just uh, work in our hearts and help us to understand and apply this to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.